So the global pandemic hit and we were all told to stay home and be safe. But what happens to those who are in between homes? Those who couldn't pay rent, maybe those who were forced to back out of a purchase because they were just laid off or let go from their job. What about the landlord that was unable to collect rent or the homeowner that was looking to sell, but they can't invite anybody in for a showing? While we were all told to stay home, that really underscored how uncertain the real estate industry became in just a matter of days. Today, we're speaking with Steve Jelinek, a highly successful real estate broker with Chestnut Park Realty. We're going to be talking about the current state of the real estate industry, how it's been affected, what's happening with buyers, sellers, renters, and what types of opportunities might be presented to all of us, and to discuss how the real estate industry has evolved with social distancing being a practice that we all need to pay attention to. This truly is Real Estate Amidst a Global Pandemic with Steve Jelinek. All right. Well, Steve, really appreciate you joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Okay. So I'm really curious to, and I'm sure Bridget is too, to talk about what's happening right now in the real estate market amidst the pandemic, what the future might hold to get some predictions on that as well. But before we get into all of that, and before we get into some more of the fun stuff, I'm curious if you can just sort of take us back to mid-March where you're, you know, obviously real estate is an industry that relies on people meeting and getting together and checking out potential homes and all of a sudden, boom, nobody's allowed to go out. What happens in mid-March to the real estate industry when that happens? Can you just give us a bit of a rundown of how much your world changed? Well, the interesting part about real estate is that um, whenever a new year starts, it's always like somebody's you know, goal and ambition for the year to, oh, buy a new place, or buy my first place, or I'm going to get a bigger house or a backyard this year. So it's kind of on people's, it's on their to-do list coming into January. So what we normally see is January and on, the market just starts heating up. And spring market's always the hottest point of the year. So with that said, this spring market was crazy. January until the beginning of March was ballistic. And it was kind of reminding me of the time period that we had in 2017 when things went really crazy before they implemented the foreign investors tax. So kind of going into March... Yeah, you go to a showing and there'd be several people there at the same time. And, you know, you'd be waiting in the hallway in a condo or outside of the house for a house. And generally on offer night, there was probably more than four or five offers. So every time that there's more than five offers, it probably means 40 or 50 people saw the property within a week span. So the market was really active and, and people were out and about. And that's like you said before, Tom, that's how people buy real estate to go from this crazy whirlwind of activity to then news articles coming out about coronavirus and the first case in Canada. You started to see a, a hesitation in the market, but I would say around March 12th, off the top of my head, we really saw, you know, kind of people engage into uh, a COVID real estate market, which basically it went from ballistic to cautious to crickets all in about a week and a half span from March 12th until maybe the 25th. So yeah, that was kind of the lead up and then the, the progression into it. And then once the lockdown measures were announced, it was complete crickets for, uh, for a few weeks. I would say probably a month or two, actually. So you're saying you saw a huge decline in the market within a week, a week and a half span. That's alarming. Well, yeah, and we've never seen that before, right? I mean, the only thing that I can really relate it to from a real estate perspective is in 2017, 
uh, I think it was April 22nd, they implemented the Fair Housing Plan, which was the 15% foreign buyers tax, rent control, a few different measures that the government put in place because the market was just running away. So what they tried to do is they tried to use government intervention to control it. And what we saw after that day was also that cautious, whoa, where are things going? And then we saw a steep decline, but not to the same degree as we saw with COVID because literally we were ordered to stay home. It was a t tricky time period for a lot of people that were caught in the market that might have bought at the height of the market, and now they need to sell and the market just disappeared all of a sudden. So as a business owner, when you see the transition happen so rapidly, what goes through your mind? Because I can't even imagine for myself, it took a, a few weeks for me to notice a sizable difference in my business uh, in terms of revenue, traffic, all of that jazz. But for you, when you, you see such a quick turnaround, what goes through your mind? Is it panic? Well, I wouldn't say panic because I mean, buying a place is very emotional. And if I'm panicking, then the client's going to panic and then the market panics. And there has to be a sense of calm and, and understanding of what's happening as much as we possibly can. I'm not saying I understood it. I don't think anybody did. But to try to make some sense of the shift in, in the market and adapt, I think is really important because once if you can get ahead of it, you can benefit the client in a way that other people might not be able to because you're adapting to the situation. So, for example, when, when this was all breaking, I, I had a few listings that we were set to come out with. We changed the marketing strategy. Instead of doing video, uh, photos, floor plan, what I also integrated was a, a virtual tour. And these are something that I'm not such a fan of if it, if it weren't COVID. But due to COVID, it's a very functional tool because you can actually scroll through the property at your own pace. You can toggle around. You can see every nook and cranny of the property online. So it's literally like you're walking through. And it's not my choice of marketing, but we pivoted to use that. And we still actually launched listings because there was uncertainty in the market on which way pricing would go. And after a long consultation with my clients, we chose to still list because we don't know if they're gonna sell for less than a month or two. We didn't know how severe things would be. And uh, several of those properties actually sold entirely virtually without the buyer actually seeing the property at all. So that was pretty cool because it was mission accomplished in a safe manner. Uh, the buyers were happy once they closed. The sellers got a good price and everybody walked away happy. I think the key to surviving anything of this magnitude is to adapt and to try to be as well positioned as you possibly can because we have the tools at our disposal now to do that. So Steve, on the topic of adapting in uh, pivoting the way that you're marketing your businesses and the way that you're marketing these listings to keep everybody moving and to keep the housing market moving and to continue to sell and to do your job. Maybe give us an idea of what you've seen from the market itself. So less so about real estate agents in the industry, but with people, people that are selling, people that are buying, how have they adjusted? You mentioned the idea of somebody making a purchase by only seeing a property virtually without even stepping foot within it. That would have been unfathomable, you know, six months ago or 12 months ago, you would think, I'm sure maybe some people would do that if they're buying properties overseas, but in most cases, you'd want to check out what you're going to buy. So how has it all sort of adapted and changed from the perspective of the, of the buyers and sellers? It's a good question. And I don't think for the most part, the change that I've seen with the kind of blind buying, let's call it, where you don't see a property in person is that I've represented clients before on blind buying 
for lack of a better phrase. And it's usually for investment purposes where it's just numbers, location, building quality. Maybe they had seen the building before. I go in, I take a video of the unit, send it to my client who might be out of the city, facilitate a transaction. But the properties that I actually sold virtually were primary residences. And that's the really interesting thing because that's the ultimate shift because those people are going to be in that space every day. It's just not about numbers. But I think in terms of the consumer's perspective, anytime the market's in one direction or another, there's always somebody who wants to take advantage. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not advantage in a bad way. But when the market's really hot, sellers want the world. And the market's down, buyers want the world. So what I've noticed is a sharp shift in the mentality of who's controlling the transaction. And the buyer has kind of become the new seller because there's quite a bit of listings on the market uh, compared to before, for sure, and there's less buyers. So whenever you have an influx in inventory and a shortage of demand, prices stabilize if not come down. Back to your question, I find that the consumer confidence in the market is still very high. I, I feel as though people understand that Toronto is a very desirable city. Um, I think for the most part, from what I can tell at least, I'm no expert, I think Toronto's handling the pandemic probably better than a lot of cities of our size around the world, uh, which I think is going to contribute to you know the longevity of any investment in the Toronto market. And I think that people are understanding that. So I, I think the public perception of the market and uh, the way people are behaving within it is relatively optimistic. But I, I do feel as though people are more open than ever to exploring different means of actually purchasing Real estate, for example, those blind offers. Another uh, option that's been really successful in the market as of recent is to basically negotiate a deal conditional on viewing the property. And that's probably more common than the, the no visit at all, because what it does is it shows a meeting of minds between the buyer and seller. And then once the meeting of minds has taken place and it's on paper, the buyer can then go out knowing that they're going out for a purpose where if they just see this property and they like it, they can then go firm on the transaction and essentially purchase that property. So buyers and sellers are, are more open than ever to actually working together. Whereas two months ago, it was just buyers were competing. They were coming in with deposit checks, offers way over asking price. There's a nice meeting of the minds that's happening in the marketplace for the most part. And Steve, I know Toronto is your backyard in the market you know best. Just on a global scale, just thinking bigger picture, what are you seeing kind of as trends throughout the world right now in terms of real estate. I know you're paying attention to the US and Europe and things of that nature. Big picture, how do you think uh, the real estate market around the world is being affected by this? For example, Montreal had a complete shutdown. As you may or may not know, in Toronto, in Ontario at least, real estate was designated an essential service. And it wasn't just business as usual. It was to help people who were in a bind, who might have sold, who have nowhere to go, and the land registry office stayed open. But in Montreal, it's to my understanding that the real estate was not deemed an essential service. So there was no showings allowed. There was no in-person activity. There was no real estate transactions being facilitated for the most part because there was a complete shutdown. So you really saw Montreal's market grind to a halt, whereas normally it was a very resilient and the hottest market in Canada, actually. Uh, based on price growth year over year because it's significantly more affordable than Toronto. And then you have another example like New York, who was one of the hardest hit by the COVID pandemic, and their market just completely shut down. Whereas they have thousands of transactions recorded throughout the month, there was literally like two for a week period in, in New York. And that, that's crazy. You never hear that. In cities or provinces or states where there was a complete shutdown and where it wasn't deemed 
an essential service, we really saw a decline. Toronto stayed somewhat resilient because it was deemed an essential service. But I mean, earlier in my brokerage meeting uh, today, we went over some of the stats about you know showings and, and offers registered and sales comparison of, of this month compared to the last month. And everything's way up right now. So we saw a sharp decline, but the, the other uh, markets in the world where there was a, a strict shutdown, uh, they saw a massive decline. And how they're going to bounce back will be really interesting. You know, there's a lot of conversations about people kind of doing the mass exodus from New York right now because COVID hit it so hard and density is kind of danger when it comes to COVID. So there's a lot of conversations about that. And, and for the most part, there are some studies coming out that are showing people kind of leaving major cities. Not so many. I think New York's the only example that I've actually read of. And it makes sense because they were the hardest hit. But then a lot of the professionals in the industry in New York equate the same type of thinking to when 9-11 happened and everybody was saying everybody's going to leave New York. But then a year or two go by and people come back and then the city bounces back. So. I think there's the potential for people to find leaving major cities more attractive than ever. I hope I'm not giving too long-winded of an answer here, but also Chestnut Park, the brokerage that I'm with, has offices in Muskoka, Prince Edward County, kind of the, the recreational markets surrounding Toronto, and they're noticing a big uptick in activity right now. So I think it'll be a, a common theme for the next year or two as we work towards vaccine and things of that nature, that people are going to want more space. And we might see uh, some people leaving cities based on the concept that density is danger at the moment. I have a couple of close friends, actually, who are looking to move out of the city because of exactly what you just said. And, you know, they moved here from small towns or from out west because Toronto is such a bustling city. There's so many opportunities around us. There's so much going on with our nightlife. It's proximity, right? But now that we're not really close to anything exciting, it's almost like why pay as much as you don't want to to stay? And according to multiple reports lately, in April, the average one-bedroom rent in Toronto dropped 2.2% month over month, which is, I think, for a renter like myself, that's good news. But do you see it changing as we continue to stay in this position that we're in throughout the summer? Do you see any type of decline happening in the rental space? Oh, yeah. The rental space has been hit the hardest. Vacancies are skyrocketing because what you have is you have thousands of Airbnb units, which are no longer rentable via the Airbnb platform. So what's happened is now you have all these investors who are making big cash flow. They go from a great month in February of renting out the apartment short term to March, they can't rent them out at all, to April, they're empty, to May, they want to rent them long term now. So what we've had is a huge influx of listings coming to the market for rent. And generally, they're fully furnished. You couple that with an extreme lack of demand due to people not moving into the city, due to people not moving anywhere. And what you have is, is this really stale rental market um, and I have several rental listings myself, whereas, you know, a year and a half ago, we'd have three offers on the second day on market and potentially rent for over asking. Now you have landlords giving two, three months rent abatements or uh, discounted rents. I mean, just to put it into perspective, and this is probably not a good example to give, but the I had a client who rented an apartment for $2,250 in the King West neighborhood a year and a half ago. 
And we went back to market. The building's flooded with inventory because Airbnb is now shut down. So there's about 30 listings in the building. And we rented for 1800 because the unit was empty and it costs more to carry an empty unit than it does to take a lesser rental amount. So my clients lost $450 every month the next time that they rented the property. You've never heard of that in Toronto. That, that's an anomaly. And also, I was going through uh, a report, I forget what the website it was from, but they were outlining the most important aspects of a rental property to renters at the moment during COVID. And proximity to restaurants was way down as an important factor of what they would rent. And then proximity to subways was also way down. So transit kind of just fell off in terms of one of the main renting features. So you think about that. Those used to be the most important things because people would go to work. Now they're working from home. Again, just to put it in perspective, I'm putting up a rental listing at Bloor and Bathurst today. And as I was writing the description of the property, I put steps to the subway. And then I realized that that might not be as as attractive as it used to be. So everything's certainly changing. And uh, the direction it goes, I mean, it's just going to really depend on on how long we're in, in this lockdown for. So Steve, just wanted to pick up the conversation regarding Airbnb and how much of an impact this has had on Airbnb and then the available units on the marketplace, because there's a lot of levels to that. It's also that typically, you know, tourists that would fly in or take the train in or even drive in would find an Airbnb for the weekend and people aren't coming here the same way now either. Tourism has come to a screeching halt. Obviously, the airline industry is severely impacted. So you kind of touched on Airbnb and the flood of units from people that previously used that platform that are now available to renters. Can you just dig into that a little bit deeper? Give us maybe an idea of like how badly has Airbnb been affected? How many units are becoming available? How much of an impact does that have on the rental market in general? I mean, it's massive. It's thousands and thousands of properties. And there was always studies before about, you know, Airbnb rentals causing a lack of inventory in our resale market, which then drives up prices due to lack of inventory uh, and a demand that has no inventory to satisfy it. But it really goes deep. The rental market's obviously the first one affected. But then what happens when you have a vacant old Airbnb unit that you were making great cash flow on? It's full of furniture and you can't rent it because there's 30 other listings in the building. A, you take a huge discount on your rental price. You know, when you compare that $1,800 that my client rented his place for uh, compared to what he could have got Airbnb, it's probably one third of the gross income per month. So that's a huge decline. So that's a tough pill to swallow for somebody who's getting great cash flow uh, and running a successful Airbnb business. So what happens is that you know, they look at the numbers and they say, oh, I was making $5,000 a month short-term renting this property, or I can make $1,800 a month renting it long-term. This isn't worth it anymore. My property's gone up $200,000 over the past three, four years. Why don't I just cash out? And then what takes place is that they say, okay, screw the rental market. There's 30 listings in my building. I'm not going to rent for a lot. I'll just sell it. And then what takes place is that they list the property for sale. And then what we're going to see is basically the Airbnb market inventory that the units that were being rented goes to the rental market, which then goes to the resale market. So there's a trickle over that, that takes place from one to the next. So 
the Airbnb inventory that's coming to the rental market has, has a massive impact on things because it's flooded the rental market. I don't quite feel as though it's flooded the resale market, but there's potential that that happens. And just for an example, uh, several listings that I see for sale, they basically say furniture is included. And why would anybody sell all their furniture? I mean, it takes place sometimes, um, but it really doesn't. For the most part, I'd say 99% of the time, people buy empty units. Whereas now, you know, if you buy this property and you take the furniture, you'll almost get a better deal because the landlord doesn't have to dispose of it. There's tons of different moving pieces here. I mean, you have a flood of rental units coming to the long-term rental market from Airbnb. But also, as I touched on before, in 2017, in April, the government lifted rent control restrictions on new units built after April 22nd, 2017. So what that did was it made developers say, oh, wow, now we're actually incentivized to build purpose-built rentals because the government's no longer going to control the rent. So what happened was a lot of buildings that were actually supposed to be condominiums, which are owned and, and sold to the owners, uh, turned into purpose-built rentals, which is basically rental apartments, but new nice condos that are rentals. So the developer could maximize the rents. And because they were no longer subjected to rent control, they started actually building them. So what's taking place now, from my perspective at least, is that a lot of those projects from 2017, April, are nearing completion that are purpose-built rentals. So we're going to have another wave of rental inventory to the market, not only from Airbnb, but also from those new buildings that would have been condos that are now purpose-built rentals. And anytime a new building's built, you know, you have at least 250 units. You get this big flood of inventory from Airbnb to the rental market. And then now we're going to have a second wave of purpose-built rentals. At the moment, we have no demand because people aren't really moving. We don't have immigration coming in. We don't have tourism. We don't have all these different factors that we're normally supporting the strength of our market. So everything kind of works together. But Airbnb is playing a massive role right now. It's incredible to hear about all these changes that have taken place in such a short period of time. I mean, Airbnb, one of the most impressive business models for so long, completely shaken up now. It's hard to wrap my head around, but I'd love to talk about etiquette. So as renters are going out there and looking for a new home and vice versa with landlords as well. What is the proper etiquette during such a sensitive time as renters go in for viewings? And then on the flip side for landlords, um, homeowners, when they're preparing their homes, their units for the market? Well, I think for from a rental side and resale side, they're, they're kind of different worlds. For rentals, what I would say is that people are just negotiating really hard because they can, because there's tons of inventory. In our resale market, we haven't seen that change. So the etiquette for a tenant compared to a buyer is going to be very different because the markets are not quite in the same situation. But yeah, no, it's, it's not uncommon for a renter to say, look, here's my offer, take it or leave it. There's a thousand other ones out there. If you don't like it, then you know keep your empty unit, keep paying your carrying costs every month and go into the negative. Whereas you know, a year or two years or four years ago, that was never the case. I mean, it's not uncommon for a renter pre-COVID to have to have a three, four month deposit rather than just first and last because they're competing against two, three other people in the property. What about in terms of, because obviously during this climate, everyone's, uh, I would say paranoia is kind of heightened in terms of uh, cleanliness and uh, just making sure everything's germ-free. So if I'm a complete stranger uh, interested in renting someone's unit, walking into their home, 
what should I be mindful of or what should the landlord be mindful of when they're preparing their homes for show? There's strict protocols in place, at least for my brokerage. I can't speak for all the brokerages out there. Chestnut Park is, is very diligent when it comes to this stuff. So initially, before you even go see the property, you have to sign an acknowledgement indicating that you haven't traveled, that you don't have any uh, COVID symptoms, that you're not going to be using the washroom in the property, that you're going to wear gloves and a mask, you're not going to touch the light switches. So this has to be signed by all parties before a showing even takes place, whether it's for rent or for sale. On the day of, you get to the property, if it's something that you want to see and that you've really gone through the online marketing materials to make sure that it'll be a good fit, you get to the property, you have your gloves and mask on. If it's a condo, you know, I take a different elevator than the client. You make sure to keep that social distancing. You go into the property, you don't touch anything, and then you walk out and that's the showing. It's really changed because... Now what's happened is that due to showings completely dropping off, most of it's being done online, to be honest with you, whether it's for a a buy or a sell. But yeah, I would say the major changes to the actual showing process are the acknowledgement agreements, the signings, everybody understanding that there's risks associated with the task at hand. And from a seller or a landlord's perspective, you don't want to actually be living in the property if it's on the market because people are going to be passing through and you know, sanitizing and making sure that the airspace is not contaminated. All these different things that come along with COVID are very hard to manage when you're living in a property. So for the most part, if, if you're a seller or a landlord, you want the property to be empty, whether you have to stay somewhere else or anything of that nature, that is the best bet. That's really, really interesting to kind of understand how you guys have pivoted. And that would have had to happen quickly because that etiquette, those standards of cleanliness would have sort of changed overnight. So it's really curious to hear. And now, Steve, I'm curious to also now better understand the foreign buyer market, which sort of ties in the same problems that are happening with Airbnb or tourism in general, whether it is Toronto or other major markets throughout North America, it's always a hotspot for foreign investment. And, you know, historically, there would be a lot of people coming from all parts of the world to buy properties and to use that as an investment. So what have you noticed in terms of the foreign buyer market and how that's been impacted? Well, first I'll touch on the point that you brought up before, Tom, about when COVID first broke and we were trying to all scramble and figure it out. It was a mad scramble about gloves and masks and acknowledgement agreements. So there was this huge point of confusion in the market, but generally lawyers and and brokerages all kind of binded together and and Canadian Real Estate Association to come up with a a method that worked. So it's good that you touched on that because it was a very confusing couple of weeks to try to figure things out. And as it relates to foreign buyers, I think that the foreign buyer market in Toronto is not, to my experience at least, is not as strong as people believe that it is. Primarily because the implementation of the um, international investors tax that came in in April of 2017, whenever you have a 15% tariff or tax or anything of the, the sort, that comes into play, people start focusing elsewhere. And what we noticed in Toronto when we implemented that tax is that Seattle and Montreal became hotspots for foreign investment. Seattle, because the tech industry, it's a beautiful city. Looking in America, there's no international buying tax. And then Montreal, because, well, in my personal opinion, it's the next best thing to Toronto. And they don't have the international buying tax. And it's a city that's growing at a very fast pace. So... When we put that in, we lost a lot of our international attention. As time went forward and our market started to rebound and be more buoyant, uh, I feel as though international investment started to come back in because Toronto is kind of the blue chip stock of Canada. Investing in the city 
that's growing at the rate at which we are is is not a bad idea because the rate at which jobs were coming here and the, and the rate at which the city was growing. I think that's certainly dropped off that momentum that we gained in the international market after the drop initially from April of 2017. We saw a ramp up international attention. But yeah, at the moment, if people aren't buying real estate or selling real estate locally, internationally, it's a whole other story. And I really feel as though the people that are local are always the most motivated. The people international are thinking numbers from my experience. So uh, the numbers game at the moment is not as strong as the relocation game. So I would say that for the most part, the international market is disappeared for the time being, but I'm, I'm very confident that it will come back. Now, Steve, when this all happened, none of us were prepared to plan accordingly because, well, I think many of us have never been in the position uh, that we're in right now, and we never foresaw a pandemic coming our way. So you can't really plan for these things. But now that we kind of know where we're at the current juncture, we have our slow open, there could be another phase, we don't know. But now that we're a bit more comfortable, I think, uh, with all the changes that have come about the past few months. Where do you see things headed in the market? If we were to have another phase come about, how would you plan accordingly? We can only take the first phase as kind of our example. The resale market I'm really noticing is starting to pick up quite a bit now. People are realizing that this is the new normal, the sun shining, buying or selling their home is still on people's to-do list. This is through a small kink into the plan in terms of timing. But I am noticing a lot of people are now contemplating you know, making the move, selling the property that they've wanted to sell for a little while, buying the property they've wanted to buy for a while. So I feel like the resale market has, has a good amount of strength and momentum behind it right now because the time period from January 1st until March 12th was so strong. I feel like it's created a momentum that's regaining right now as spring kicks in. I feel like real estate is very psychological. And I do believe that the spring market is can in certain instances, in most instances, in my opinion, be stronger than the fall market because the factor of the sun shining, you know, people want to go away in August or July. So they want to kind of make that move beforehand. And just everybody's in a good mood in Toronto. So I mean, buying a house, hey, it's a good idea. I'm in a good mood and the, the sun is shining. But I do feel as though the resale market is going to be very resilient even if a second wave comes, because now the market's adapted. There's no longer a scramble. People understand that, you know, gloves, masks, my office has actually kind of been ahead of the curve. They've actually created showing packages, which include booties for your shoes, gloves, masks, hand sanitizer, and also sanitizer wipes. So you kind of have the toolkit to achieve what you need to do in a responsible manner. And that didn't come around until two, three weeks ago. So that'll assist going forward if there is another wave because there is a plan in motion already. Is it perfect? No, I don't think anything can be perfect during COVID, but it is as close as you can be, I would say, to staying protected and still achieving a task at hand, which is essential. You know, people have to buy and sell. It's the biggest investment of their life and uh, there's a way to do it responsibly. So the resale market, I believe, is going to be quite resilient. The rental market, I'm still pretty concerned with, to be honest with you, based on the factor of Airbnb units coming to the market, purpose-built rentals coming to the market. And I'll just put it into perspective for you. A, a microscopic example of this is that whenever there's a new condo built in Toronto, when it's starting to occupy, a lot of those new condos are investor heavy. So whenever you buy into a, a condo building, you want to know 
how many renters there are to how many owners. It's a percentage basis. And generally, the older buildings are more owner-heavy, and the new buildings are more investor-heavy. So when you have a, a new building come to market, 300 out of the 400 units come to market for rent, and they're really hard to rent. And that's what's kind of happening to our rental market right now. I don't want to drill down on that too much, but I am a little more concerned about the rental market than the resale. Speaking to the resale market, the higher end of that has seen a steep decline in transactions, 2 million plus. There's really not many taking place. There's a few different you know, segments to the market, but I think the market $1.5 million and under is going to stay very resilient. Should a second wave come, there will be a, a blip in that, but I, I think it's going to keep moving. So Steve, really interesting to get your sort of projections and views of where things are headed across the rental market and across smaller properties versus more expensive properties. I'm curious, just really, really big picture across the industry as a whole. Obviously, things declined as pretty much everything did over the last couple months amidst all of this. Where do you think this is headed really big picture? Do you think this is the beginning of housing prices and rental prices continuing to trend downwards in a place where it makes housing more affordable? and available to young people, less foreign investment, less Airbnb properties? Or do you think that this will be sort of a temporary blip and real estate has been booming in so many different markets throughout North America for a number of years now, and it's just set to continue? Where do you sort of see this headed big picture across the industry? Big picture, the fuel that was being poured on our market was immigration. People coming in for jobs, wanting to live in urban centers, downtown, you know, Leslieville, East End, West End, and be accessible to transit. Now, when you have 100,000 people coming to a city every year based on immigration, you need to house those people. And when you also have a shortage of inventory, what it does is it just creates a frenzy market. So it'll all depend on immigration, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's just going to depend on how many people are coming into the city. I think it's also going to be a factor of do people need to go to the office five days a week anymore? You know, I, I think if you have a work from home scenario, I think that people might go to cities outside of Toronto because they no longer have to actually go into the office every day. So there's going to be a few different things that are going to drive our market. But I think the main thing is going to be immigration because the demand is the number one element to any market. And if the demand is not as high as it was, we're going to see a stabilizing, if not a decrease in pricing. But it just depends on how long COVID goes for and how long it restricts the influx of people moving into Toronto. I think that's the main thing at play right now because for the most part, you know, Toronto is one of the most desirable cities out there. Crime is low when you compare it to cities of our size throughout North America, at least, and it's a desirable place to be. So I think immigration is going to be the big one. But my forecast is that I think that the market's going to stay quite resilient throughout this COVID era compared to other cities of our size. You know, I'm still seeing great sales take place all the time. So in certain portions of the market, I would say sale prices are maybe down 5 6%. In other portions of the market, I would say maybe 2 3%. It really just depends on the property type and where it's located. The longevity of that, I mean, to be determined. But I, I think immigration and accessibility to properties is going to play a big role. For instance, if there's a second wave, you know, if people are going to have to go back to only virtual buying, that's going to slow down sales. And whenever you have a slowdown in sales, you have uh, stabilizing, if not a decrease in pricing. Super interesting. So, Steve, you know, you've given us a view into what happened when the pandemic hit, what's happening right now, the new normal and etiquette for buying and renting, staging, 
and sort of some predictions about what the future may hold as well. So really, really interesting to get your perspectives on all of this. Thank you so much for your time and insight and best of luck getting through the rest of this challenging period. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. This was awesome. Yeah, I really appreciate it. That was super insightful, Steve. Stay safe. Thank you again. You too, guys. Take good care. Thank you.